If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Mark chapter 12, the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. We continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark. We've been looking at the Passion Week, which began on Sunday when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, an event that the crowd took to be a replay of something that happened two centuries before when Judas Maccabeus came in after defeating their enemies. On Monday, Jesus cursed the fig tree and it withered. He cleansed the temple. On Tuesday, which is where we are, it's a busy day. Jesus' question about his authority to do what he did in cleansing the temple, he responds by asking them about John's baptism. And his opponents are unwilling to answer his question, so he doesn't answer theirs. Jesus then tells the parable of the tenants. This parable is really significant because all parables up to this point had to be explained, not this one. Even his enemies understood what the parable was about. Then his opponents, the Pharisees, tried to trap him by asking him if they should pay taxes or not. It's a trap because if he says yes, they should pay taxes, then the people will turn against him because why pay taxes to the Romans? If he says no, then they can report him to the Romans and he'll be arrested. Last Sunday, we continued on Tuesday, And we saw that the Sadducees took their turn at Jesus. They asked him about the resurrection, which the Sadducees did not believe in. As we saw, their intent was not like the Pharisees. The Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus, paint him into a corner. Either way he goes, he's in trouble. The Pharisees tried to ridicule him, talking about a woman who's married to seven different brothers and who will she belong to in the time of the resurrection? Jesus answered them by saying, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So Jesus sort of puts the Sadducees, but he answers them very well. They can't respond. The Sadducees are the priests. They take care of the temple, the sacrificial system. On the other hand, you have the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. They're not priests. Okay? They're not, you have to be born into the family to be a priest. They are teachers. And this teacher of the law comes up and asks him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And when Jesus gives him an answer, the teacher says, you gave a good answer. Well said, teacher, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no one other than him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbors yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. As I mentioned last week, this is sort of a slap against the Sadducees who think it's all about the sacrifices, it's all about the temple. And the Pharisees are like, no, it's all about the law, the traditions. So when Jesus speaks of the law, loving God and loving your neighbor, that seems to be sort of an anti-Sadducee answer. In speaking of this, 
I use the word yahoos to refer to the Sadducees, which I should not have done. It was wrong, and I apologize. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were the opponents of the Sadducees, but the temple was honored. That's where people perform sacrifices, nowhere else. The temple is where you offered a burnt sacrifice to God. The differences between them were theological, but perhaps more importantly, the issue was who was the crowd going to follow? Would they listen to the Sadducees, who were only in the temple and in Jerusalem, or to the Pharisees who were scattered throughout Palestine and beyond? In the Gospel of Mark, the word crowd appears at least 31 times most of them dealing with Jesus during his ministry. When Jesus cleansed the temple, if you look at chapter 11, verse 18, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. By the way, there's one more positive moment with regard to the crowd in verse number 37. We'll get to in a bit. After this, when we see the word crowd, it's opposed to Jesus. So the issue for the Pharisees, for the Sadducees, and then in their opposition to Jesus is, who will the crowd follow? I want to just briefly review and revisit the issue of what is the greatest commandment, in part because I hardly touched on it last Sunday, in part because it's truly important, but in part because what we will see in the rest of chapter 12 today must be seen in the light of the greatest commandment. So one of the teachers of the law came to him and said, of all the commandments, and remember the Jews believed that there were 613 commandments, what is, which is the most important? And then Jesus says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Love is one of those words that many people find difficult to define. It's been sentimentalized. It's been reduced to an emotion or a feeling. It's really quite more, much more than that. And I'll only mention a few things. First of all, love must begin. It begins by being directed toward God. You will recall that Jesus, when he begins his answer, begins with these words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the foundation of the commandment to love. I'm not saying that unbelievers cannot love. I'm not saying that those in our world who do not believe in God cannot love. But true love begins when it is directed toward God. Even as Christians, I don't know that we think in these terms. I think we're much more sentimental about it, this feeling, this warm, fuzzy feeling. It begins with our relationship toward God. Secondly, love must involve the whole person. It isn't like, I love with my heart, but not with my mind type of deal. We're to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What these are may be debated, and this is not the time or the place to do that. Um, I will say about the heart, 
in Proverbs we read, above all, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. That's where life begins. Let's set aside what is heart, soul, mind, strength. It is the whole person. Every part of who we are is to be involved in loving the Lord our God. And it must be done to the full. Four times we read, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Not with part of your mind and mostly your heart, with all of who you are as a person. And if we wonder about this, we should remember that God's love is wholehearted. It's not partial. God loves us with his whole being. And this is seen supremely in the sending of his son. And then lastly, love is not to be directed only toward God, but toward our neighbor as well. We are not free to say, as I've heard people say in the past, I love the Lord, I just can't stand my neighbor. Uh, That's not the way it works. Love for God is demonstrated in the fact that we love those around us. Two more things and then we'll get into the the passage today. First of all, Jesus said to the teacher of the law who, who agreed with him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. We might hear that as a good thing, but I wonder if the teacher of the law was insulted. Thinks, what do you mean I'm near, I'm almost to the kingdom of God? You're, I'm not far, I, I thought I was in the kingdom. What are you talking about? And the second thing is, from this point on, nobody asks him any more questions. This marks the end of challenges to Jesus' public ministry find that interesting. Now we come to three incidents that will finish out chapter 12. And I will argue that each one of them is tied to this issue of what is the greatest commandment. You may remember what we saw in our series on creation. That what we find in God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is giving and receiving. Between the three members of the Trinity, there is this giving and receiving. Between the Father and the Son, the Son and the Spirit, the Spirit and the Father, and so on. There is this giving, this relationship of giving and receiving. This giving and receiving is life. This life may also be called love. That love involves giving and receiving. We'll see this as we go along. There are three incidents. First of all, Jesus asks a question. This is new. Uh, Yes, he has asked questions before, but usually in response to a question. Now Jesus takes initiative. Secondly, he warns about the teachers of the law. And then thirdly, we have Jesus pointing out the widow uh, and her offering. Jesus' question is not only to the teachers of the law and the Sadducees, but to the crowd as well. Look, if you would, at verse number 35, Mark 12, 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, how is it that the teachers of the law say that, Christ, that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. 
So I said up to this point, other people have been asking Jesus questions, and he has usually responded with a question as well. But now he takes the initiative. He asks a question based on Psalm 110, verse number 1. And the question, I must confess as I began, seems difficult, but it's actually quite simple. How is it that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who are wrong, by the way, in this matter, say that the Messiah or the Christ is only the son of David. You see, Jesus and the Pharisees agreed that David wrote Psalm 110. They're in agreement on that. That it is a psalm about the Messiah, the Christ. By the way, uh, Messiah is the, comes from the Hebrew word, but it means the anointed one. Christ comes from Greek. It also means the anointed one. They also agree that David wrote this directed by the Holy Spirit. This isn't just something that David made up. But the teachers of the law saw that the Christ or the Messiah was merely a descendant of David, that David was the high point, King David. That's when the kingdom was at its greatest. And then somewhere down the line, hundreds of years later, there would be a Messiah, there would be a son, a great-great-great-grandson of David, who would, in fact, help deliver Israel. I would suggest that the Pharisees are not alone in this. When Jesus entered Jerusalem in chapter 11, the crowd shouted, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. They're still thinking in terms of David, but they get it all wrong. And Jesus, I would say, lovingly, in love, he is now giving them something for them to receive reveals who he is. If, in fact, the Christ, the Messiah, is merely a son of David, if he is merely a descendant of David, then why does David call him Lord? I mean, I think in any human society, the patriarch, the older ones, the grandfathers, the great-grandfathers, they don't refer to their grandchildren, their descendants, as Lord. If anything, it's the other way around. So how is it that David calls him Lord? That can only work if, in fact, this descendant of David is more than merely a descendant. And this is who Jesus is. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the son of David, the anointed one. By the way, if you go to Psalm 110 and you keep reading, in verse number four, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So this son down the line of David is not merely the Messiah, Lord. He is a priest and not a priest like the Sadducees, but Melchizedek, who was in the time of Abraham and not for a while, forever he will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So David's descendant is more than a king. He is a priest and a priest forever. During his ministry, Jesus has given ample proof that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Think of all that he did. Healing the sick, raising the dead, calming storms, feeding thousands, casting out demons. Think of all that he taught and we won't go back through Mark, but just here on Tuesday of the Passion Week, on paying taxes, 
on the resurrection, on what is the greatest commandment. Yet it appears that the teachers of the law, those who didn't want to kill him, but certainly the crowd merely saw him as a really good guy, a descendant of David, who was going to lead them to victory over the Romans. Some might disagree because of the end of verse number 37. The large crowd listened to him with delight. This is the last time, by the way, we see the crowd in a positive light. The crowd loves what they hear from Jesus. So it would seem, one would argue, Damon, that in fact, the crowd is on his side. But I like what one commentator wrote. Enjoying a sermon or a discourse, any word whatever coming, whether indirectly or directly from the mouth of the Lord, is not the same thing as being spiritually benefited by it. If you've been with us as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, I would remind you of something we saw in chapter 6. When John the Baptist was arrested and put in prison, in Mark, Mark 6.20, when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled. In other words, John the Baptist would preach to Herod and he didn't quite get it. Yet he liked to listen to him. Herod liked to listen to John. Let me ask you, uh, what did Herod end up doing to John? He had him beheaded. What will the crowd do to Jesus? They will turn him over to the Romans to be crucified. Just because they listened to him with delight doesn't mean that they understood him or that they agreed with him. That's the first event. The second is Jesus' warning about the teachers of the law. Look, if you would, at verses 38 through 40. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Uh, I must begin by saying that this is a general statement. It's not directed at every teacher of the law and not particularly at the one who questioned him about what is the greatest commandment. Jesus is making a general observation. He's warning his listeners, be careful of the teachers of the law. I think he's mentioned six things here. First of all, they like to walk around in flowing robes. Um, The priests, the Sadducees wore robes in their function as priests. Royal officials wore robes. Uh, I don't think teachers were supposed to wear robes, but they did, and they're flowing robes. They wanted to be noticed by people by what they wore. They like to be greeted in the marketplaces. And this is more than, you know, saying hi to someone, but people bowing and saying, Rabbi, how are you this day? They wanted to be recognized as being special and unique. They like to have the most important seats in the synagogues. As best we can tell, the way synagogues were set up is that the Torah, which was to be read in the rest of Scripture, was on a platform. Someone would come up and read 
but in the front of the platform were seats facing the congregation. And this is where the teachers of the law wanted to sit. They wanted to sit up front so people could see them. They could be seen by people. And they were near the action. Somebody's reading so they could you know, nod their heads and say, yes, that's true. They could be seen and, I don't know, be seen by the congregation, but also somehow be seen in a higher light than they should have been. They like to have the places of honor at banquets. I said, I would suspect that every banquet was organized differently, but in, I think, most special occasions, there is a table up front, a dais, where the guests of honor are. If it's somebody's birthday, uh, somebody's quinceanera, for example, that, that's the place of honor. That's where they wanted to be. Again, they want to be seen by the people. They want people to know, I'm important, I'm up front, and you're not. But then number five is the most troubling. They devour widows' houses. You know, up to this point, we might think that the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, are just f- full of themselves. Big heads, okay? They want to be recognized by people. This is, this is in a different category altogether. As one writer put it, they fatten themselves on the houses of lonely women. And, and how would they do this? Well, the teachers of the law were considered to be experts in the law. And so if a woman is widowed, and then there might be some legal questions, who's the executor, who gets what, it's the teachers of the law who know what the law says. And it very well could be that they maybe took the position of executor. Whatever happened, they took more than what they were owed. In fact, I don't think they were owed anything, but they took away from these women. Or it could be that they asked the widows to contribute to their ministry more than they were really able to afford. Sister, we're sorry for your loss, um, but when the time comes, if you could consider contributing X amount to the work that we do, we are teachers, we have to study, we can't work, uh, give, give us, if you would, some of what you have from your husband's estate. In any case, they are seen as devouring. They're chewing up what these widows have. And then lastly, for show, they make lengthy prayers. They prayed long prayers so that they would be noticed by others. Perhaps by the widows. Perhaps they pray these wonderful, extravagant prayers and the widows like, Sounds like a good guy to me. Sounds like a godly guy to me. I, I should probably do whatever it is that he says. Jesus says, beware. You need to be warned. And know that these men will be punished most severely. You may be wondering, Damon, how does this fit in with the greatest commandment? Love is giving and receiving. This is what we see in the Trinity, giving and receiving. But because of the sin of Adam and Eve, that's no longer the pattern for people, is it? The pattern in the world is taking and keeping. And it begins all the way at the beginning with Eve. 
We find this in Genesis 3, when Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She took and kept. This is what we find in the world today, not giving and receiving. A teacher of the law, a woman has lost her husband, he should be there to comfort, give her wisdom and guidance and say, listen, this is what you should do with what is remaining of your husband's estate. Instead they, instead, they want to take and they want to keep what they can. They want to devour the houses of widows, of lonely women. You see, Eve did not believe that God had given and that she was to receive. Okay? She didn't see it that way, that she had been given and she was to receive. Instead, she turned and said, I will take and I will keep what I want. And in doing so, if giving and receiving is life and love, taking and keeping is death. It is death, and it is certainly not love. The teachers of the law that Jesus warns against were ruled by taking and keeping. And what is taking and keeping? It is death. They would be punished most severely. The third event is found in verses 41 through 44. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put in to the treasury has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. It's a moving passage, and one that I fear has been abused through the years. Jesus is sitting near a place on the temple courts called the beautiful gate. It leads into the women's court. Women could only go to a certain part of the temple court. And interestingly enough, that's where the offering boxes were. There were 17 of them, six on the left and seven on the right. And there were letters from the Hebrew alphabet. By the way, as we go through Psalm 119, we, we get at the beginning of each session uh, section, a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and there people were to put in their offerings. Jesus is sitting there and watching. We are told that many rich people threw in large amounts. First of all, there's nothing wrong with rich people giving a lot of money. Okay? They have a lot of money. It stands to reason that they would, in fact, give a lot of money. Even though the verb threw in sort of makes one wonder, um, it seems as though they want to be noticed. Ching, you know, throw in a bag of coins and people can hear, oh, brother so-and-so gave a lot of money today. It's not these people that Jesus points out, but it is a widow. This widow gives two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. 
we have no equivalent in our economy to what she gave. Um, her coins were one-eighth of a cent. So if you could take a penny and slice it into eight, she had two pieces that were worth an eighth of a cent. Physically very light, made of copper. It's a wonder that they didn't bend easily. Very thin and very light. But Jesus points her out. What she did was important in the eyes of Jesus. So much so that he calls his disciples to say, look at this woman. Look at what she's giving. <coughs> and I would suggest that the disciples probably couldn't even tell what she's giving. These are two tiny coins. It's not as though they're a dollar bill or a big metal coin. Uh, two tiny coins. You probably couldn't even tell what it was that she had given. Jesus tells his disciples, I tell you the truth. I think in the King James, it's verily, verily. Now, let's pay attention to this. This poor widow has put into the treasury more than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. What is the difference? They gave a lot, she gave a little. So is this like, oh, you should only give a little. Uh, what, what is the difference? She gave in love. She had received, and now she gives in love. She had received, one would say probably not that much. She's a poor widow woman. She hadn't received as much as all these rich guys. But she recognized that what she had, she had received from God. And now she gives back. It seems that the others gave, but not marked by love. In these three incidents, we see Jesus revealing himself as the Messiah in love. We hear him warning against the teachers of the law who are not acting in love, but rather in death, taking and keeping. And thirdly, we see this widow woman who gives in love. One writer put it this way, one might have thought she was merely putting in two copper coins. But in fact, she was putting in everything she had. One might have thought that the Messiah was merely David's son, a human king among other human kings. But in fact, in the Messiah, Israel's God had given himself totally, given all that he had and all that he was. just as the widow put in all she had. In a few days, Jesus will give everything he has that he might provide salvation. Tuesday's a busy day on Passion Week. A lot of things happen on that day. But I would remind you, if you think about it, they're all pointing to what's coming ahead. The parable of the, talent, of the tenants, what are they going to do? They're going to kill the heir, right? They're going to kill the son. In a few days, 
That's what the Jewish people are going to do. They're going to kill the son. They're going to kill Jesus. The Sadducees ask about the resurrection. Just stick around, guys. First day of next week, Jesus will be resurrected from the dead. As to whether or not Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, again, stick around for a few days and you will see that he is, in fact, the Messiah, the Christ. But above all, what we should take away from Tuesday is that Jesus is marked by love, giving and receiving. And while some people might say, well, he's just the son of David, that's not a bad thing because we want him to drive out the Romans. Well, it's just like people saying, oh, see that widow, she just gave two tiny coins. That's it. No, she gave all she had. And Jesus in a few days will give all that he has. Let's pray together. Our Father, like the crowds, oftentimes we enjoy what we hear, but we don't understand. What Jesus is doing here is demonstrating love. And what we see in this widow at the end of the chapter is love. Not a small offering, merely giving two coins. It's giving all she has. Jesus is not merely the son of David. He is the Christ. And he will give all that he has. May we take to heart the nature of love, that it is giving and receiving. It's so hard to get our minds around this in a culture of consumption, of taking, keeping, consuming. Like Eve, the fruit, we take it, we eat it, we give no thought for others. May we see that love begins with our relationship to you and then is reflected in our relationship with others. We thank you for your word. For all that it teaches us. Above all, supremely, what it tells us about your son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you for bringing us together today, the first day of a new week. As we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. We do remember Jeff Fetzer and his upcoming surgery. Watch over him, guide the doctors in all they do. For each of us, we are grateful for the measure of health. We pray that you would give us strength. Above all, may we love you as we should and our neighbors as ourselves. We thank you for your love. We don't have to wonder what love is. We see it in all that you've given us. Go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.